0: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum radio show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for, bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus would. My guest today is Herb Gray, a close friend and fellow apologist and a founding member of the Ambassadors Forum. Herb is an Oregon lawyer with over 26 years of litigating free speech, religious liberty, and conscious cases arising under the U.S. and Oregon constitutions, including defense of traditional marriage, parents' rights, the transgender agenda in public schools, and the Sweet Cakes by Melissa case. He is a member of the National Board of Directors for the Christian Legal Society, and has long been an allied attorney affiliated with Alliance Defending Freedom. Herb has practiced before Oregon trial and appellate courts. Wait, Herb has practiced before Oregon trial and appellate courts, the U.S. Dris- the U.S. District Court for Oregon, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the United States Supreme Court. Herb. Welcome to the show.
1: It's good to be here, Roy.
0: Herb, you and I have been personal friends for a long time, and I've benefited tremendously from your wisdom and instruction about the law from a biblical perspective over the years. You have quite a resume of standing up for the Bible in the courts of America. How have you seen the landscape of law and order change here in the United States over the last few decades?
1: Well, one of the things that has changed is that the battles used to be over whether religious speakers had a right to speak in public places, and that was uniformly upheld. It was very seldom that those rights were limited. Mm. Over the last 20 to 25 years, what has occurred is there has been increasing pressure other than in public places to silence religious viewpoints in a variety of contexts. What I mean by that is legislatures have increasingly passed laws which limit religious speech and conscience rights, and what results from that is a battle in those particular areas over enacted laws rather than individuals complaining about speech in public places. Mm. And I would also say that, generally speaking, The climate for toleration of religious viewpoints has declined during that period of time.
0: Hmm. It seems like more and more that our judges and courts are appealing to international law as their standard. What do you think's behind that, and what will be the impact?
1: I believe there are several things going on there. One is there's a decreased appreciation for the exceptionalism of our American Republic Mm. and a desire to get away from the things which make it distinctive, which are generally based on Judeo-Christian values. The other thing is that there's a common perception that European countries in particular seem to be a lot smarter and work a lot (laughs) better than we do in the United States. So there's been a desire to import that kind of law uh, into American courts, Hmm. which tends not to be as favorably disposed to Judeo-Christian values. I have not seen a lot of evidence of that directly in the cases that I've handled, but I have heard a lot of instances where it has come up in other places and been a much more persistent problem.
0: Do you think there's any developments in the law that Christians should be concerned with because they might impact our ability to obey God's commands and proclaim the gospel and publicly defend our faith?
1: Well, I'm not sure we have enough time to address all of those uh, instances. (laughs) But um, as I indicated earlier, uh, there's been a, a decreased tolerance of religious voices in a variety of contexts. And that comes up in a variety of forms. Probably the most notable is that a lot of administrative agencies have been delegated responsibility by legislatures or by Congress Hmm. to enact rules which tend to infringe on religious liberty. And a lot of times those uh, situations are then litigated and adjudicated in administrative law courts rather than in the civil courts, which has all kinds of problems with it. The other thing is, I believe that for the last 60 to 70 years, Christian churches and other institutions have largely tried to distance themselves from political matters Hmm. and have remained silent about those things. And what that has resulted in is contrary voices have pretty much dominated uh, the conversation. So when a Christian voice tries to intervene, you know, comparatively late in the game, the common reception is, well, what do you have to say about this? Hmm. As if there's really not anything that a religious perspective can add to the conversation. So in part, I think the church has reaped what it's sown in terms of being absent from a lot of areas where these issues have been discussed. And secondly, I think it reflects that the government is increasingly encroaching upon religious beliefs and practices to an extent that the founding fathers would have found incredible.
2: Hmm.
0: I know I've heard some people say that the Bible commands Christians to always obey the government no matter what. Do you think that's true?
1: Well, I know that there are voices out there like that. My response to that is if the government said that it's not okay to proclaim the gospel, would everybody accept that? My sense is that that's kind of an easy out for people who don't think very deeply about how our government functions and, and how our government relates to other institutions like the church and the family. So the way I look at it, um, a Dutch prime minister named Abraham Kuyper actually came up with what he called sphere authority, which basically posited that the church and the civil government and the family were three core institutions that tended to overlap to some degree with each other, but each had its own independent area of jurisdiction. And most people don't really stop and think too much about what's really the area of responsibility for the church or the family as compared to the government. It is easy for folks to think, well, the government doesn't have the right to come into my house and tell us what we ought to eat and how I should uh, you know, raise my kids and things like that. Intuitively, they think that's outside the, the government's authority but they don't really think much more beyond that. Hmm. And my own perspective is as the government becomes more proactive and intrudes on more areas of everyday life, the other institutions kind of have to push back a little bit or else pretty soon the government will be the only authority uh, exercising any power.
0: Do you think there are any restrictions being imposed on churches that people of faith should resist?
1: Well, um, there are several different answers to that. One is that LGBT rights generally have a higher prominence in our society than they used to have and those delve into areas of employment and who can go into what we call places of public accommodation or uh, venues that are open to the public as it were. So increasingly the government has passed laws which say that you can't discriminate against people on the basis of a variety of protected classes, including sexual orientation and gender identity. And the it makes it hard for the church when it has employees and is open to the public to be able to push back against government regulation in that that regard. It also comes up in the context of our current circumstances where there have been a lot of authorities, mostly governors and mayors of major cities who have imposed a variety of restrictions to stop the coronavirus. And a lot of times the restrictions that are imposed on places of worship and on people of faith are more onerous than they are in other places. Hmm. For example, in Nevada, the governor imposed restrictions on churches not having more than a certain number of people present for worship, but they allowed the gambling casinos to have 50% of their uh, normal population of people on the premises. And the cynic among us would say, well, that's because the government makes money off of casinos, so they don't want to shut them down. Hmm. But it's a a genuine example of what's happened in Oregon and a lot of other places where there's been litigation because the church has been restricted more than a lot of other institutions or or even businesses.
0: And are there standards that have historically needed to be met by the government about how the laws are applied or for what purpose and is that changing?
1: Well at the risk of becoming a little geeky here throughout most of our history what was applied when it came to matters that infringed on religious liberty in particular was what was called the strict scrutiny test and what that means is in order to limit any kind of religious expression the government had to show it had a compelling government interest and that the means that they had developed for accomplishing that purpose was the least restricted means available to do that, to accomplish that. So what that means is that first of all the government has to show it has a really good reason for doing what it's doing and secondly it has to balance that against the rights of the people who are being uh, restricted in some fashion. So that was the historical strict scrutiny test that was applied until 1990. And then in 1990, the U.S. Supreme Court had a case before it called Employment Division v. Smith, where they said, well, we're not sure that we ought to still use the strict scrutiny test. We think if the government passes a neutral law of general applicability, then there's no need for the government to justify either it's compelling interest or secondly show that it's taken the least restrictive means of regulating or accomplishing that purpose. Mm. And what that really meant was that the government needed only to show that it had a reason for doing something and they didn't have to balance or respect the rights of those whose liberties were infringed by doing that. And what came out of that was, first of all, a lot of restrictions on religious expression that previously would have been protected. Hmm. No balancing or or concern over the religious expression. Hmm. And it was such a problem that even the US Congress decided that they needed to do something about it. So they passed what was called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 1993. And as a sign of the times, just think about this. In 1993, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed the US House of Representatives unanimously and it passed in the Senate by a 97 to three vote. And it was enthusiastically signed into law by President Clinton, who was very proud of the fact that he was signing it into law.
2: Hmm.
1: What's happened since then is there are a lot of people who claim that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act just creates special rights for Christians, which get in the way of LGBT rights and a lot of other things. And because of that, it really authorizes hate speech. Mm. So now the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is under considerable attack uh, in a variety of quarters. So you can see how the level of tolerance um, and inclusiveness that was true in 1993 is kind of a thing of the past at this point in time.
0: Wow, that's a, that's a great example, Herb. Do you think there's opportunities for churches and people of faith to be speaking up that we are not taking advantage of?
1: Well, first of all, there are an incredible number of Christians who are not even registered to vote and don't vote. So as citizens, the first thing that we have to say about how our government is formed and who it is that exercises authority over us, those people basically abandon the field and leave it to people with a different viewpoint. Hmm. And I would say uh, from a biblical standpoint that people who do not exercise their God-given right to vote are derelict in their duties as citizens. Hmm. Secondly, I believe, That there's a great amount of fear that keeps many people and certainly many churches from speaking up when they have the opportunity and they hide behind things like well that's a political issue and we don't do politics well is abortion a political issue or a moral issue that's just one example of how i think that's a mischaracterization Hmm. to hide behind the it's just politics uh, excuse i think what what really needs to happen is that many, many churches in, in particular are independent and not really connected to other churches. So they never think of working together when they actually agree on many of these things. Hmm. And what happens is it's left to one or two churches or one or two individuals to go out there and, and you know speak up for the gospel and the rest of the body of Christ remains silent and keeps their head down, hoping that the uh, fallout doesn't land on them. And that's a fairly common problem. As a lawyer, I can tell you, lawyers can't go into court to advocate for a position if they don't have a client. Hmm. And there have been a number of times when people have contacted me and say they're really concerned about something. Maybe uh, the curriculum in the schools that involves comprehensive K through 12 sexuality education or something like that. So we sit down and have a conversation. I say the law's in your favor as parents. Not to say that this is an easy win, but we should be able to push back. And are you willing to do what's required to litigate this? And generally speaking, the answer that comes back is, well, no, not really. Hmm. And these are individuals, but where are the churches? They're not even having those conversations. They're not calling people like me and saying, shouldn't we be doing something about this? So the churches, I think, have really abandoned their people by not teaching about stuff and by mm. not engaging themselves and setting an example of Christian citizenship.
0: Hmm. And that that's a uh, phrase I've heard a lot is Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. What do you think the biblical justification that they're relying on to make that claim is?
1: Well I suspect that they're probably thinking about Romans 13 and 1st Peter 2 where it says to be subject to the governing authorities but again my my sense is that it's really more motivated by fear Hmm. They don't want to stand up for the gospel and articulate a Christian viewpoint and even though they fuss and fume and uh, privately wring their hands about the direction that our nation is going They're not really willing to do anything to add a Christian voice to the conversation Which of course just means that things continue to get worse and worse
0: Hmm. Wow, these are these are great concepts Herb, and I appreciate you bringing a biblical and legal perspective uh, to this conversation to help us think through these things. As a final question, in the context of apologetics, what are your suggestions for the most important actions that we as Christians can take to make sure that we are able to proclaim and defend our faith in our culture today? Well,
1: I think there's a couple of things. Um, First is we have to have a basic level of biblical literacy. We need to know what God's revealed word says and what principles it espouses. And secondly, I believe that we need to engage our minds, which God gives us and he tells us not to be transformed by the world in Romans 12, Hmm. to have an understanding of, of particular issues where we can ask questions and try and drill down uh, in conversations with other people about what they really believe. Mm. And if we don't think about those things, if we don't have apologetics type of training or experience, it becomes very intimidating to go out and try and have a conversation if you don't know uh, what the common fallacies are and and some very popular opinions that are anti-biblical. People will feel inadequate about questioning popular orthodoxy. And if you're not equipped to do those things, it's pretty hard to have conversations even with people who are friends. Hmm. And um, again, I believe that's just part of our duty as Christians to believe that the gospel applies to all areas of life, not just what we do on Sunday morning. And that people need to be ready to talk about those things and to ask questions and to explore with people that have a different viewpoint, the other six and a half days of the week.
0: Mm, that's a that's a great suggestion. Do you have any particular books that, other than <laughs> obviously the Bible, that people could read and and get educated on these kinds of civic and spiritual matters, then especially the integration of the two? Do you have any helpful resources? books um other things that people could look into to get more information
1: well um the list of books is probably too long to recite here but i would say what people should do is look for ministries that first of all promote a biblical worldview like the colson center for biblical worldview Hmm. obviously stand to reason has a lot of good materials on various subjects so they should should be looking for resources where they hear on a regular basis about different resources that are available Um, and there are many many good books that are put out by some of these organizations but if you're not following them either on the internet or in social media you may never hear about those types of resources so i think the the most important thing is for people to to find Uh, credible sources that they believe are authoritative and biblically based and listen to what they have to say and explore and decide for themselves if some of the resources that are talked about are helpful in terms of engaging on particular uh, subjects. But I would say the most important thing, first and foremost, is to develop a biblical worldview. Mm. And if you don't have that, you know, that, that assumes that you read your Bible and you know what's in there mm. and that you're well, uh, ready to obey it. And then it assumes that you engage with that and think about it more deeply and try and discern how it applies to the issues of the day and how to reach people in our society who probably have little or no Christian background anymore.
0: Well, that's very good. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, Herb. And like I said in the beginning, it's been a a joy and a privilege to benefit from your wisdom and your experience and your lifelong commitment and investment in your career and in our legal uh, system here in the United States. I appreciate uh, everything that you've done and I hope that you continue to fight for the gospel.
1: Well, Roy, it's a joy to uh, be a co-laborer in God's vineyard with you.
0: All right. Thanks, Herb. Thank you. Now, how about you? Where are you with the Lord today? How are you doing in these tumultuous times of the virus pandemic and government overreach? Are you struggling to find answers to your tough questions? I want to encourage you to search diligently. The Bible has the answers you are desperately seeking. And the Ambassadors Forum is here to help you get started. Go to our website at theambassadorsforum.com. While you're there, you can look at some of the questions we've already answered. You can ask us your hard question. You can sign up to receive our monthly newsletter. Browse through some of our helpful resources. Make sure to follow us on Facebook. And sign up to join, one of, and sign up to join us for one of our monthly forum events where we have great speakers presenting on relevant topics. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on Two Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.